This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have Randy McGinn. Uh, Randy is a terrific trial lawyer from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, she was nice enough to take time out after giving a great speech at the AAJ conference in Maui uh, to sit down with us and uh, talk about some of what she has to share on on trying cases, on developing cases, on and on her journey to become a uh, the powerful trial lawyer that she is today. So great being here with with you, Michael. It's Thanks great. for asking me. No, it's I'm honored to have you here. Uh, so let's kind of jump into it. You talked this morning about stories. Yes. Why are stories important for trial lawyers? Um, it's the um, one thing that still unites us, and um, it's how we make decisions. Actually, all the the neuroscientists that are looking at it say. That, that people early on adopt a story or a virgin, version of something, and then, unlike what most people think, that they wait till the evidence and they make a decision, they adopt a story right up front, then they reject the evidence that doesn't fit their story and accept the evidence that does fit their story. Yeah, and we've seen that in, in focus groups where people, they start talking about one thing and then they will just, no matter what the evidence is afterwards, they're going to stick to that conclusion they made, and it's amazing. Right, and if you, if you, no matter what side of the political divide you're on, you see that in real working, working out in real life. No matter what contrary evidence somebody shows you about somebody, you still believe in that person. Absolutely, absolutely. Just the uh, the things that were, you know, about one. Past president, you know, some people would automatically assume any allegation was true. I mean, my mother-in-law still, who's an immigrant, by the way, a first-generation immigrant right. from Central America, is still absolutely convinced that Barack Obama didn't really go to Harvard, is a Muslim that was part of a secret plot to destroy the country. Right. Uh, but yet, anything, no matter how many women say something about Donald Trump, all oh, they're just trying to bring him down. That's that's it's right. Just, well, uh, that's, how, that's, how, that's how people are. And, and so it's important for lawyers to know that because um, it's you have to through the story that you create or the frame that you create, you have to grab the juror's attention and, and get them on your side from the get-go. And that doesn't even wait till opening statement. It starts in Vordire. Tell me about that. How does it start? How does storytelling start in Vordire when we're asking questions? Well, you, you need to put the jurors in the zone of danger, the same zone of danger that your client was in, because the story has to be about them, really, rather than your client. Um, and you do that by asking them about the risks that your client was subjected to and the rules that they think people should play by. Um, and so in, in, in a recent case, it was you know, um, involving a rape of an anesthesiologist that I just talked about um, in the talk here, um, a woman anesthesiologist raped by a fellow anesthesiologist who was two years senior to her. The um, question in Bordier was, of course, have you been under anesthesia? Um, and before you were put under, did you think to ask anybody if the person who was giving you anesthesia was a, a rapist or a sexual predator? And um, of course, nobody thinks to ask that, but would you want to know that if the hospital knew that? 
Um, and of course, everybody would because they don't want that person putting them under. And, so, and that question in Vordaer suddenly put everybody in the zone of danger for what my client had been in. Yeah, I remember when you asked that question, the first thing I thought is, no, I never asked, think to ask that because I would not think that such a person would be in the hospital while I am unconscious. Well, that's uh, right. <laughs> you'd, like to, you'd like to hope that. But in fact, um, yeah. in, in our case, after this woman reported that she had been raped, she was kicked out of the, the program in eight months, and he graduated as an anesthesiologist and is a practicing anesthesiologist in Austin, Texas right now. Uh, that's, that's disgusting. It reminds me of a, of a case that another lawyer at the firm's working on where uh, it's a coach that was fired uh, at the University of Texas mm -hmm. uh, for having a relationship more than a decade before with the student, and yet a male coach had a student report contact and she is taken off of the football program and put somewhere else and he doesn't get any real punishment. Right. The sad thing is, the sad thing is organizations over and over again, uh, when they have a choice to protect the rape victim and other women who might be in similar circumstances or in the case of the hospital, a patient, their choice is to protect them or to protect the rapist and themselves and their program. And over and over again, they choose the, the wrong thing. They yeah, choose you, to protect themselves in their program. You over see that and over with again. churches. You see that with the scouts. You see that, unfortunately, with just over all and over. Sorts of what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me or to our program if they find out about this? And right. they, they end up um, covering up, squashing the reporter and um, the person that reports um, and doing the wrong thing over and over. And that's how, to no surprise, with <laughs> some people say, oh, I can't believe all these things go on for years and years and years. Well, it's because people cover it up rather than do the right thing and expose it. Well, that's our job, right? <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, we know stories are important. How do we know what story to tell? Oh, well, I'll tell you what we do in our <laughs> firm. Um, whenever we're getting ready for a case, I actually write several different stories. So with different timelines, with different, from different points of view, telling the story from different people's perspective that are involved in the case and then do focus groups uh, on them to um, see which story uh, is most persuasive with a jury. So you don't know until you focus group it. And, and of course, we get some of our best ideas from ordinary people rather than um, from ourselves because we get narrow-minded and focused on a case. And so we tell the story in different ways and, and different orders um, and see which one the jury likes the most. Wow, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I read somewhere in your book, and I've heard Jerry Spence say it too, it's 100 hours outside the courtroom for every hour of time inside the courtroom, but you said sometimes it's... It's 200 <laughs> or 300 hours outside the courtroom for every hour in the courtroom, yep. So I guess you're not writing your opening statements the Sunday before uh, trial. <laughs> no, we're not, although I'm all, uh, but I'm constantly tweaking it. So I'll, I'll have, di even like right before trial, I have, have different ideas or I don't know what it is about trial that focuses your attention so powerfully, but you see things suddenly right before trial that you never saw in the case, even though you may have been involved in the case for years. So, But in general, are there some things that are better than others on uh, storytelling? I mean, as far as persuading juries, like, I think you talked about whose point of view do you start with, whose story are you telling? Um, so some people would say, I know there are some people who espouse the belief that there's only one way to tell a story. Um, I don't think of the law like that. I think the law is not like classical music where there are all these rules and you follow all the rules. Um, I think that the law is more like jazz 
in that you start telling a story and the difference is you're not just standing up telling one story, the other side begins telling their opposite story and you have to respond in real time in the courtroom to the narrative they're spending, spinning and alter your story to address the facts that they're doing. And if you can do it at the get-go in your opening statement, that's great, but often things come up that you haven't thought about or they, they tell it in a way and then you have to respond. And that's, that's kind of like jazz. So yeah. I, I think there are as many ways to tell a story as there are lawyers. Um, and if you don't know which one is the most persuasive from your experience, if you're just a new lawyer, then you have to test it out on juries and see which, uh, or not just juries, just your family members. You, yeah. you tell, I mean, from the moment I get a case, I'm telling people the story of my case over and over again at seminars, on buses, if I'm riding in on a bus, if I'm sitting in the stands and there's some, there's some downtime, I say, hey, let me tell you, what do you think about this? And ask people their opinions so that I don't get so narrowly focused just from my point of view. So that's how I get ready for cases. Now, what are the, when we're telling a story, what are the characters that you have to have in a story? Oh, the good. That's, well, that's good. So what you have to have, um, you have to have a villain. Um, the more horrible your villain, the bigger your verdict. Um, you have to have a hero. Um, uh, and then you have sub-players. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the great things is, is trying to search for and find who the villain is in the case. And there may be more than one person. Um, the hardest thing to do is when you have a giant corporation, because, of course, um, the definition, I think it's Ambrose Bierce in the Devil's Dictionary, defines a corporation as a, an entity that's designed for maximum profit and minimal liability or yeah. responsibility for anybody. And um, so it's diffuse responsibility, and so you have to try to find somebody, because just saying the corporation or all these people is diff a difficult concept for the jury to understand. So you have to find somebody in the corporation that was the bad actor or the decision maker that did the, the worst things. And you, you want to then let the jury understand that's who the villain is in the case. Yeah, to me, the hardest cases to cast the villain are ones where we can't talk about who the villain really is because we have a nice person who made an honest mistake and rear-ended somebody while not while working, right? You know, and we have this evil insurance company <laughs> that's doing all these bad things to prevent paying the person that got hurt, right? And we can't say the I word in trial, and so which is a, by the way a ridiculous rule because in truth, I mean that those rules in all the states were put into place before there was mandatory insurance for, for cars. Now with mandatory insurance, even though not everybody obeys the law, the juries always assume that the person has insurance. And so this, this charade that we do to pretend like there's no insurance here, um, or even to, and it works against us too as plaintiff's lawyers. People assume that people have health insurance too and say we don't need to award medical bills because they have health, health insurance because the court doesn't tell the jury the truth and, and explain what's gonna happen and give them the tools so they can deal with that information. And the, the much better way to do this, although it's hard to convince uh, courts to back off of this entrenched position, is to tell them about the insurance for the vehicle, to tell them about whether you have medical insurance or not, and then tell them if you pay medical bills, they have to pay back their insurance company. I mean, that's the way to deal with it. Yeah, I always feel the truth would be the best way to try a case. Unfortunately, sometimes we're hamstrung. Right, well, and that's that's a, that's, one of the things that makes people doubt the justice system because they're not getting the true facts all the time. And I've had the issue, and you know, I've I've found ways to 
come up close without crossing the line. I've had jurors ask, well, did you already take the insurance money and now you're trying to get money from this poor person? Which is what they assume. And, and we have to say, well, I can't tell you whether there's insurance or not, but I can tell you you're not allowed to do that. If You, know, if you can't take someone's insurance and still sue them if right. there was insurance. And then they used to say, well, I don't think you'd be here if there wasn't insurance. Right. And I said, well, I'd love to answer you. that. I can't well, tell that's, you. Well, that's what I tell them. I'd love, to, I'd love to answer that question. Let me check with the judge and see if I can. Then I come back yeah. and I say, sorry, the judge won't let me tell you the answer to that question. Wink, wink, wink. Or I'd, I'd love, love to, to tell you. Question. I'd love to tell you the answer to that question. And, and, that, and the problem is, by not telling them, people assume that it exists sometimes when it doesn't exist. And yeah. that's, that's a huge problem. But, you know, to me, the, the challenge of, uh, I'm jumping into a case that's set for Monday, and yeah. uh, it's in federal court. The defense allowed the trucking company to stipulate to liability at the last minute and will not allow any liability evidence in. Yeah. And so I'm having, like, how do I cast a villain? And the villain has to be the, you know, the decision makers who decided to pay professional liars to come in and say my client was hurt before and not really hurt in this wreck. Right. Uh, so, but, you know, it's how, you know, how are they villainous? Because we just can't talk about... You know, the law says they're liable for it, so here are the injuries, because that's not going to motivate anyone to do anything. Right. So, so can you at least get into the, the force of the crash and those kinds of things to talk about injuries? Well, that's what the defense is trying to do, because they're trying to claim that it didn't cause the injury. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I'm ready for that. All right. But, yeah. Well, yeah, well that, you know, what people don't understand is um, the odds against the individual plaintiff in these David versus Goliath fights. I mean, plaintiff's lawyers are always representing the little guy against uh, giant corporations, whether it's a trucking company or whether it's an insurance company. Um, and people understand the, the, the way they do tricks like this at the end to, to fight you all the way and to call you names and say that you're faking and all this stuff, and then right before trial, stipulate to liability um, after you've spent all this money um, improving, improving liability. Um, and, and I think most jurors don't have any concept of how difficult that fight is and all the, the dirty tricks they play on the other side. And they probably won't care about that. Well, I think they if may, they may know, not. well, they might. They might, uh, I, I think they wouldn't care. Uh, do they stipulate liability? Most jurors would say, oh, great, so now it's easier for us. But, but they don't understand all of the money that gets expended up right. to that point, how, how expensive it is for anybody to bring a case. I mean, I, I think the common misperception is that People get hurt and say, oh, goody, I have a lawsuit. Um, my experience has been the exact opposite. Over and over and over again, particularly where the worst thing in someone's life has happened, where their child has been killed, where the breadwinner of the family has been made a quadriplegic or unable to work. Um, people sit and come to my office and say, I never thought I'd be the kind of person to be in a lawyer's office. And when they say that to me, I say, well, what kind of person do you think that is? Because you're in the same boat as anyone who has something horrible happen to them. Um, and only, the, the great news is, under our set of laws, you, even though you're a little person, a one person, um, have the right to take on the most powerful people in the country. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. And so you can go after the hospital that committed malpractice that killed your child. Or you can go after the trucking company who, you know, let people drive beyond their rest breaks. Um, and, and, and that's a wonderful thing, you know? And I, I think people's, um, people misperceive um, what our clients go through and how, how difficult it is then from that point, once they decide to take them on, how difficult the fight is to take them down. And the guilt they sometimes feel for even standing up for their own rights, especially in, you know, in a death case. Right. Uh, right, it's, it, that's the most, 
that's the most difficult. It's why um, we stopped asking just for money and started asking for, particularly in death cases, for them to change something. Um, and that came out of a, a case where a woman's son was killed by a drunk driver. Um, and for the, this is when I was a young lawyer, and the, they paid the money right away. They paid the $25,000 of insurance money. And the woman wouldn't come pick up the check. You know, I called her and called her, and, you know, six weeks goes by, and then two months go by, and finally I said, look, you just have to come down here to pick this up. Now, actually, I would have gone out to see her. I'd know better to go to people's right. houses. But so you have to come pick it up. She comes to my office, sits across the desk, and I put the check down, and she won't touch it. Finally bursts into tears and says, how can I take money from my son dying? And that's, that moment is what made me realize that uh, for when your loved one dies, it's, n it's never about the money. Um, although the money is a measure of responsibility and can help take care of family members. Um, but people want changes so it doesn't happen to anybody else. And so from that moment on, we, uh, in, in all death cases and in most of our cases, ask not just for money but for changes um, before trial as part of our settlement. Um, and um, interestingly, often um, we'll make an offer like this, say we'll, we'll settle the case for $5 million if you make no changes, and we'll settle the case for uh, $2 million if you make the following 10 changes. Um, and we've had about 40% of the people take us up on the changes idea. The other 60% are interesting, because th th <laughs> those corporations are the ones that say, well, hey, if we do the changes, we have to take it out of our bottom line and we have to pay for it ourselves. But if you hit us for a big verdict, our insurance company has to pay it. So we're going to start at the $5 million. We're not going to make any changes. Yeah. And when that happens, the great thing is you know exactly who you're dealing with on the other side. Somebody who has no morals at all, and it makes you even more eager to find everything you can and to take them down. I think it takes away some of your client's guilt when they see that, too. Yes. Yeah. I've unfortunately only been able to negotiate a change once, but it was such a magical mediation. It was not the biggest settlement by any means. Right. I mean, it was a it was a tire that came off an 18-wheeler because it had picked up a nail and they hadn't been inspecting the tires correctly and so it ran out of air. And, but it was a really, really bad venue. There was going to be some Daubert issues proving how long that nail was there. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, you know, a... 80-something-year-old woman. We only had the one adult child uh, but and who felt incredibly guilty about filing a lawsuit. Right. Uh, but when we got as part of the settlement, and we wouldn't negotiate the numbers uh, until they agreed, and they agreed pretty quickly to have a new training pro and inspection program, and they all we got to choose the videos they were going to watch on how to check your tires, oh, nice. and they were going to hand out uh, tire pressure gauges and not just use a, a piece of wood to thump on them. Uh, she felt so good. I mean, and I think the defense lawyer felt good. I mean, everybody felt good at the end of that mediation when we and, settled that case. And isn't that the best result of all? I mean, and, and I'll tell you that our, the people whose loved ones have died feel better, I think, about the changes than they do about the money. Always. And in almost every case where we've negotiated changes. The other, I don't know if you've experienced this. On, on wrongful death cases, the, the resolving the case is somehow the final act of letting go of the deceased. And I see this incredible emotional difficulty sometimes with settling the case because when they settle it, I see more tears in seven-figure, multiple seven-figure settlements uh, 
at the end, and not because they're relieved, but because it's so hard. Because now they finally have to say, "Now we're not. Now we have to move on." Right. Uh, and 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 the truth is, it's there's never closure, right? I mean, particularly yeah. where your child is killed. Um, so we had some clients whose four-year-old was killed in the hospital, and um, um, by a traveling doctor, and. Um, to this day, that happened, I think it's been nine years now. We settled the case five years ago. Um, they left her room exactly the same as the day she died. There's a little crumpled up piece of papers that she drew on on the floor. There's her, her you know, little marks on the wall that she made. Um, and refused, even though they have enough money to move on, they've got two other kids, moved to a different house, will not leave the house because they have this shrine to the four-year-old at their house. And yeah. so when your kid dies, it's kind of the wound that, that n never heals. Although you can kind of move on, um, it's a, you know, lasts forever. Even, uh, you know, he had a client, I'm still friends with her on Facebook, so I say, you know, we've, it's been more than 10 years, and she was in her 20s when her husband died. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a part of me, you know, you, of course it's horrible to have your spouse die, but there's a part of me, thank you, you're young, you're 20s, you're, you know, you're desirable, somebody else will come in and, you know, you will move on. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I mean, you know, at least on the anniversary of death, but several times, I mean, she puts a picture, I always love you. Uh, I mean, it's still not left her after all this time. Yeah, it's, but it depends, you know, I mean, certain, uh, certain boyfriends I'd be glad to not ever see again. <laughs> but but, but if, it's the, if it's the love of your life, even if you get remarried, it, it doesn't replace that person. Yeah. I mean, it, it just... Um, and, and anniversaries are always really, really tough. Anniversaries, Christmas, yeah. holidays that you spent with them, places that you went with them, um, it's, just, it's just always there, you know? Yeah, some of our settlements seem so incomplete now because you realize that you know, money doesn't last that long, and, but the whole is there forever. Forever, and, the, and jurors don't realize that. I mean, they, they think that they award some money and it's over, and it's, it's for people with, who've suffered the worst. It's, it's never over really for them. We were talking about casting roles in a story, and we talked about who the villains are. Yep. And how about who's the hero? So, so there's, there's often um, uh, more than one hero in a case. Um, uh, often it is the, the one honest witness who, when everybody else is saying something to protect the organization, um, is brave enough to come forward and say, that's not what happened. Let me tell you what really happened. Um, and, and that person can become sort of the centerpiece of your case. In, in police uh, misconduct cases that we've tried, often there'll be you know, 30 guys all towing the company line and one person who says, it's just not how it happened. And, and the jury, um, if you make that person a hero, um, will believe the one person against the 30. Um, particularly if all of the police reports are written in the exact same language. Because what usually happens in police misconduct cases, of course, is they have a big meeting after the misconduct, and they write up on the board what you have to include on your, in your police report. And so everybody gets on the same page. Um, and of course, if, the if it were reversed, the police were investigating somebody, they wouldn't put all the witnesses in a room and then like tell them what to say. That's, that's, that's it. So, so the whistleblower can be a hero. The, um, um, the, the person who survives a horrible event can be the hero who's speaking up to try to prevent it from happening to somebody else. Um, and then in, in every single case that you have, um, the jurors are probably the best hero. And they can be a hero in every single case because they're the only ones with the power to change the bad situation. And that has been the one realization. And I'm, I 
stupidly went almost 20 years without until I read Carl Bettinger's book, and uh-huh. I never thought of the jurist as a hero of the case, and that has been the biggest change to my trial practice, the biggest change to the results, uh, not only the win-loss record, uh, which there's only been one loss since I read that book, and wow. I've seven or eight wins, wow. and the amounts of money awarded have just really gone up just by seeing this is the, the change in schema, uh, the change in how I perceive what I'm doing, because I thought I was supposed to be the hero, or my client was supposed to be the hero. No, I thought right. I could persuade people to do things. That's the other thing that I've realized. It's a bit of a lot. It's a lot more fun to try cases now that I realize that I'm not responsible for magically. You know, I'm going to speak so powerfully and so persuasively that you're going to do whatever I want. But I'm really just here to guide you and show you the story, bring you the truth, and just trust you to do the right thing. And it's been a lot more effective, but it's also so much more pleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't feel like I have the weight of world, my, the world on my shoulders anymore. You can ask Mallory, Mallory Peacock, my partner, sitting here too. The, yeah. You know, I'm relaxed during trial now. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. Which that never used to be me. Well, we are. Um, it's it's not on us. It's it's on them. And and in fact, when I, whenever I have a jury out, people say, "Aren't you nervous?" And I feel like, no, I've done everything I can, and it's up to them. And and that's what I tell them always in closing is that, that, that at this moment in their lives they have more power than anybody in the courtroom more mm-hmm. power than the judge more power than the lawyers because they have the power to change this and make it right and do justice and that that's more power than they'll ever have in their whole lifetime yeah well, let's talk a little bit about that let's talk about a you have a case you can think of we can give us a, like some specific examples of how you wove together such a story and um yeah, the, the the probably the most the the most interesting one recently is um, involves a German um, product manufacturing company that manufactured pacemakers and defibrillators that um, broke came to this country and broke in this to the market um, by um, essentially the, you know not following the rules here that say that that product manufacturers can't pay doctors to implant pacemakers and uh, or to buy their their devices um and that was just a, a big slog to get to the real story of all of this um uh, and was so what you have to do when you get that case is you start investigating and it turns out we ended up getting 34 clients who had had because of this system where they're paying doctors to put in pacemakers um they found a doctor who would put pacemakers and defibrillators into people who didn't need them. The doctor would troll the um, emergency room if you'd come in with a broken ankle or something and say, you know, we should check your heart while you're here, and then would tell the person, um, well, I've got some bad news for you. You need a defibrillator or a, or a pacemaker or you're going to die. <laughs> but what are the facts that first came into your office? Was it... Like, how did the case first come to you, and what did you know then? Okay, so the first the first thing that came in was somebody came in and had a pacemaker they didn't need. Right, and so how do you go from doctor puts in unnecessary pacemaker to German multinational company is bribing doctors to do unnecessary surgery to make money? Well, that's very interesting. <laughs> so, so we started just getting into the discovery in the single case, and it just seemed so hinky. It was one of those situations where the person had just been there for something else, and then this this doctor comes up to him in the air and says, you know, you're going to die if you don't get a pacemaker. And the guy says, wait a second, I don't, I don't even have any, like I've, no one's even told me I have heart problems. Should I go get a second opinion? And the doctor said, um, well, um, you could do that, but first you have to sign this piece of paper saying you understand you could die on the way home. Wow. 
Wow. And so, so well, you know, so many lawyers would would just say, okay, I'm going to hire an expert witness, and the expert witness would say the doctor committed negligence by implanting a pacemaker that wasn't necessary, and they would have gone on and settled or tried that case and stopped. You didn't stop there. Well, well, because we started getting discovery. So, <clears throat> so the thing the thing that stymies most lawyers is they don't push on discovery. The hospital says we aren't going to produce all this stuff because it's royal privilege. The the um, review. A privilege that we were peer reviewing this stuff and so you can't get it. We always fight all that because the very best stuff is the stuff that they haven't given you. So in this case we found out that that within six months after this doctor started all the other doctors refused to take call for the guy because they'd come back from vacation and all of their patients would have pacemakers. Wow. And then we found also that they had initially claimed was privilege, the hospital had claimed was privilege, we found um, a year into his tenure, uh, a group of um, very brave um, technicians who worked in the cath lab, five of them filed an anonymous report with the national hospital chain company on the hotline to say, this guy is lying to people to put pacemakers in. Wow. Um, and then we found, um, again, this is like all the, the stuff you don't see on TV, all the sort of scut work, scrabbling, scrabbling, filing motions. You have to give me this stuff because this is important. And if the court won't, you say, well, then I want you to review it so you see if it's important for our case. Then we find that, that after the, the five people reported, they did take a look at him to see if they wanted him to continue. And the board, we got the board minutes, they figured out that he was making them so much money that his procedure, because he was doing so many procedures, this little hospital in Las Cruces in the southern part of the state was doing more pacemaker implantations and defibrillator implantations than any hospital in all the big cities. All of a sudden after this guy came. And so the hospital decided he had the economic credentials to continue. And so wow. he continued there for five years after they knew about these reports of people saying he was lying to people to put these in. And then the hospital, so we, the lawsuit started against all those people, against the hospital, against the doctor, against the the pacemaker company and, and ended up just going to trial against the pacemaker company. But how did you find out the, what the pacemaker company was doing? Because I don't imagine the doctor would say, well, I was really doing it because they were paying me off. Oh, he did not admit that. But, <laughs> but other, another witness said that. Another, another doctor said he tried to get me to do this and he said they're paying oh. me they're paying me $1,000 a pop for each pacemaker. That's what the other doctors said, said the doctor told him. And how did you get a doctor to talk against another doctor? Um, by that point... In the, it took a while. <laughs> By that point in the case, the, the, the bad doctor had been fired and had his uh. and was under review to have his license revoked, and ultimately they revoked his license. So, so by that time he was a pariah, and it was okay to talk about him bad. So, um, so that's but it, but it took years to get all that stuff. And how we finally got all the stuff on the the German company was they kept lying to the court about what they had and what they didn't have, um, and then we would get online. I mean, the, the great thing that makes um, sole practitioners or small law firms, superheroes is of course the internet. So they'll say to you, we've never been criticized as the company and then we get online and find that um, they'd been subpoenaed by the Department of Justice to give them all these records in another state where they thought they'd been putting in pacemakers that they, people didn't need. And we'd show that to the judge and finally the judge ordered them to produce like a million documents. <coughs> so that's where we found like the killer stuff um, was in the million, talk about work, the million documents we had to review to, to, f to figure out what was really going on. And, and in that, we found all this stuff, their whole scheme of trying to lure, not, not training up their own salespeople, trying to steal them from other sales companies, trying to lure doctors, um, 
who were high implanting doctors to their product by paying them these incentives, and then also by, and in our case, they found the salesperson, they found the doctor, and they moved them to this hospital in New Mexico, in New Mexico because their third prong of their scheme was um, they wanted a hospital connected to a national hospital chain so they could get to meet the person who bought across all the hospitals. Yeah. And and make them make a deal that will you know charge you less if you use our pacemaker across all your hospitals. So that was their scheme, and that's exactly what they did in this case. Wow. What was the result? Um, we got we only had to try one of the thirty four clients that we had, and we got a sixty seven million dollar verdict. Wow. So. What was the physical harm to your client? Um, it was not that significant. So so most of that was punitives, um, and they awarded him I think about two and a half million dollars for. His pacemaker. The, the thing about a pacemaker is, you know, they implant it up here in your shoulder, and they run wires down into your heart. And when they remove the pacemaker, they just take it out of your shoulder, but you still have the wires in your heart. For for most people, that doesn't cause a problem. But but for example, one of our clients, um, who they thought had breast cancer, couldn't go have an MRI because, oh, wow. of course, these are metal wires, and if you have the MRI, they pull the metal wires out of your veins and kill you. Mm. So. So it kept her from being able to have testing. But for him, it was just basically removing the pacemaker. So it was mostly the fraud. The yeah, because I would say a lot of lawyers, like uh, I think, would have just sued the doctor, sued the doctor in hospital, settled the case for $150,000 and moved on. Well, they, they, yeah. Um, honestly, Some, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, what I would see a lot of people value that case at. Uh, it's incredible what doing the extra work and finding the story can do. It sure can help. And then, then they didn't want to try any more cases, and so we got the other ones resolved to the satisfaction of the parties. Good. Now, you've written an incredible book. Oh, thanks. Uh, and it's a really compelling read. It's, a, it's not just good lawyer stuff. It's an incredible story. Yeah. Uh, and one thing that really is, you know, it, a lot of it tells the story of it's Elizabeth Garcia, if I remember right, right who was a single mom working all night at a convenience store right. uh the convenience store to save money didn't have any security they well they didn't have any security for the workers they had security for the money right uh, they had her there that no lighting around uh by herself no protective glass even though they knew that all these things would save money they in fact sued their you found out they sued their workers compensation carrier for not telling them they could do all these things that would lower their premiums because they'd have less claims got the money and spent it and didn't provide any of the worker protection that's right and I saw that, you know, I read that that book, and, you know, one, it really inspired me, and I want every lawyer in my firm to read it because I want, that's what I want in my firm. But how in the world did you do all that work? I mean, that is an incredible amount of, you know, finding other incidents of crime at these stores, finding former employees, finding former victims, uh, finding the litigation history. I mean, how did you get all that done and still have a life and still do your other cases so that you can pay the bills while this one's going on? Well, I have, I have. A great team that works with me, both my law partners, and, and we sort of, we are um, four women partners, and we've got three associates, two men, one woman, and um, we just go after it, you know. And and when the other side, because we didn't get any of that through discovery, the, the convenience store chain fought us with everything, and the judge never got around to ruling on getting it to us, and so that so again. With the internet, where there's a will, there's a way. You can find all this. It just means putting in time. And so um, the more somebody says that you can't have something, the more determined I am to find it. And uh, you can do it. You can do it now, where you didn't used to be able to do it and catch these people in lies and 
um, expose them to the court, and then the court can order things. But, but most of it you can find yourself if you're just willing to put in the time. And I mean, how did you even think of where all to look? Um, well, it was easy. You know, we wanted to go to all their stores, and they wouldn't. They said they didn't keep track of all the crime at their stores, and so we just um, f figured out where all their stores were, where all the Allsup stores. They were only in three states, which made it a little bit easier. And then we wrote to the police departments in each one of those places and said, "Give us all the crime statistics for these these addresses, which were the stores in each town." Um, and then had to put all that together. So so. And, and, and I'll admit, I wasn't the one who went through and then like put all the information in. I had lots and lots of help doing all that And how stuff. do you find people that'll, that'll help and be dedicated and have the attention to detail? Um, that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Um, uh, you just, you just, you know, we, we take law clerks from the law school and those kinds of things and they come in and help us. And we've also had interns from some of the high schools that come in and help uh, do that kind of thing. And then we've got a great, great staff of paralegals and legal secretaries too. So about how many cases per lawyer do you guys handle given all the work you do on each one? I have no idea currently. Okay. Let me think. Let me think. We probably, well, so, so we don't really have cases like you have these 20 and I have these 20. Um, every case in our office as it gets ready to go to trial, everybody in the firm works on the case. And, and so I suspect at any one time we probably have maybe 40 cases, 40, 50 cases in the office. And as things um, heat up to go to trial, all of the focus of the office and all the lawyers in the office becomes on this particular case. It's sort of all hands on deck. And, and actually throughout the case it's kind of like that. So we do focus internal focus groups in our office by calling in our staff and everybody and doing a sort of an in-office focus group of, of presenting both sides and then seeing where the problems are in the case and where we need to work on the case. And so by, by doing that, the whole staff, and by the way, this it's not the lawyers who come up with the best ideas. It's always the staff that comes up with the best ideas. Well, Jurist didn't go to law school. Uh, yeah. So, so they, they, then, um, they then know about the case and now they're interested. Everybody's sort of interested in the case and buys into the case and then we take it from there. So, so it's, it's more of a collaborative process in our office rather than people get assigned a particular case. Okay. I want to, I mean, you've developed into an incredible trial lawyer, and you know, we're all here. I, mean, I got up early in the morning while I'm in Maui, which <laughs> is not something I would do for, in fact, I didn't get up early for anyone else. Oh, I just well, got thanks. up early to hear you. Uh, but, you know, you weren't always a trial lawyer. Uh, I want to kind of, how was that journey to, from being a, you know, a young woman to deciding to become a lawyer to learning what you've learned? How did that happen? Um, I think, well, I was a journalist before I was a lawyer. I, and being a journalist, uh, in hindsight, was like great training for being a lawyer because everything you do, um, you know, going out and doing an investigation to put together a story, getting all the facts for the story, and then pulling from a whole, whole morass of facts what's important to be able to tell the story, that's really what we do for trial lawyers. Um, and the ability to tell a compelling story that somebody wants to read or right. listen to. That's it. That's exactly right. And, and so um, I went to law school for the completely, uh, I didn't plan on becoming a lawyer when I went to law school. I was, um, write, was a journalist and I was writing spec articles and nobody would read them. And it was obvious to me I'd get back these rejection letters where they hadn't even read the thing. What's a spec article? A, a, like I just, where you aren't hired by a magazine, you just write 
something and say, would you like to put this in your magazine? And they all, I got rejection letter after rejection letter. And my uncle said to me, well, you know, I said, I can't get them to read. It's obvious to me they're not even reading this stuff. And he said, that's because you're just some kid from New Mexico that's sending him an article. If you had a, a advanced degree, they would read your stuff. So I went to law school for the completely morally bankrupt reason of having a degree so people would read my stuff. So I could then say, I'm lawyer so-and-so, and will you read my article? And then, so it was terrible, a terrible reason to go to law school. But in fact, once I got there, it was, um, I found out it was even better than being a journalist. Um, it is um, sort of storytelling on steroids is what the law is, um, where you not only get to investigate and put the story together and write the story, but you get to direct it, you direct the witnesses to come on, you get to star in it, um, and then through some kind of strange verbal alchemy, if you tell a person's story truly and well, you turn it into justice. And there's nothing better than that. I mean, it just, it, I found by accident the place I needed to be. If you don't mind, I'd also like to talk to you a little bit about women in trial lawyers in particular, mm -hmm. and uh, I am, one of my more recent, I guess, passions is trying to develop women trial lawyers in my own firm. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important, not just, it's a good goal. not just for society, but honestly, if I'm going to hire people, I want them to be very good. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I want my clients to get incredible representation, no matter who's working on the case. And, but I have found, uh, not just when you look around at lawyer conferences, for plaintiff's lawyers, and the and plaintiff's lawyer websites, you know, there's a still a vastly disproportionate number of men yep. in the field. But when I look at resumes, when we put out ads, and I even tried putting out ads with only female pronouns in them. Uh, so you know, a, a qualified candidate, you know, she will have this, she will have that, mm -hmm. and it didn't make a difference. And so, you know, I've honestly had to go to get women that are qualified that want to do this work, I've had to hire legal recruiting services. And I don't say just hire women, but I right. just say, you know, this is, these are the, this is what I want in a candidate. And, you know, if, if it was a woman, it would be nice, but you know, obviously we don't discriminate, mm -hmm. uh, but it's really taken an effort. And I wonder why it is that there aren't as many younger female attorneys applying to become plaintiff's lawyers. Um, it's a question I ask myself all the time. First of all, your efforts are commendable. That, that, that by itself helps. Um, it's why I go around the country and speak so much is because there aren't still, e even though when I graduated 38 years ago, we graduated 50% women out of my class. In my class too, I, I, that was 23 years ago for me, but right. you know, it was 50-50 female male, so you would think that by now we're all at the partner level. That's right, it's It would not be 50-50 and it's not happening. It's not happening, and, and, and a lot of it is because um, I, I think it's, it's scary, especially if you have kids, to be a plaintiff's lawyer because you never know whether you're going to get business, especially to hang up your own shingle, where you're going yeah. to get business and whether it's going to be enough to take care of your family and all those kinds of things. And particularly if you're a single mother, very, very difficult to say, I'm going to jump into this risk, risky business of, and see where it takes me. I mean, that's, that's a huge leap for people to take. And firms don't really accommodate women who want to have kids as much. It, Luckily, in our firm, because we have so many women, well, we have all women partners, um, everybody's had kids while they were at the firm, and 
because all of us have kids, we sort of stepped in to take care of their cases while they were having kids. We would know that they were going to be gone for three months or so. And so we just sort of have, have each sort of taken over and taken care of each other's kids. And, 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 and we're very family oriented. So, so we're there if there's some family crisis or your kid is sick and you have to go home. We understand all of that and kids can come to the office. And so, so we, by understanding all that, we're more family friendly, I think, than most typical firms are, okay. you know. So um, that, that helps. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping, that the one thing that, I, that I've always thought, at least for my age demographic of women lawyers, there were about a dozen of us in my law school class who were all going to be trial lawyers. I'm the only person left not being a trial lawyer. I'm the only one left practicing law wow. after 48 years, 38 years. And I don't know, maybe they're all retired and like living here in Maui or something. But, <laughs> but, um, but, but most of them quit after they lost a case. Really? And, and I think, I, I've thought long and hard about why that is. I, for my age demographic, um, women weren't allowed to play sports. The important thing that sports teaches you, and, and I ended up bullying, bullying my way onto the boys' tennis team because I, wanted, I was a tennis player and wanted to play, and so played in, played in high school. The thing that sports teaches you that you don't get anywhere else is that no matter how good you are, um, that on any given day, something out of your control can happen. The wind can blow or the ref can make a bad call and you can lose the game. Um, and then you have to get up and go on the next day. And, mm -hmm. and for my demographic of women who didn't get to play sports, the only place they competed was in the classroom where if they got an B, it was because they, it was all their own fault because they didn't work right. hard enough, right? So, so when they lost a case, they didn't understand that it's not all you, and they felt terrible because they felt the blame for losing the case. And in fact, as any trialer knows, all kinds of weird stuff can happen <laughs> that yeah. you can lose, no matter that you have the greatest case ever, you can lose any case, and it's not, it's not your fault. Things out of your control happen. And so I'm, I was hopeful that now that women are playing sports and learning that lesson, that there would yeah. be more women trailers. So now when I send Mallory down to just take the loss on a really, really crappy case we made the mistake of taking, I'm really doing her a favor because she's learning how to lose that's, I think it's great. Right. <laughs> I think it's, I, I, by the way, I think that's actually true. The best thing that can happen to you, especially if you're afraid of losing, is to lose one. Because then, by the way, you hate it. But guess what? The next day the sun comes up. There's other people who need your help. You go and you you go out and you take up the mantle again, and you go fight again for somebody else, and and that's it. So it's a really important lesson yeah. to learn. I fully expected to be a superstar, and I went and lost my first three jury trials, and I was given the crap at the firm. Oh, for sure. Uh, and uh, I still had enough self confidence. I mean, you know, it does kind of get to you a little bit when you lose your first three. Right. But then I, I hit big on the fourth one, and that's all anyone talked about, and everyone forgot about the three I lost. That's how it I works. won one. It was. It was really amazing. And, and I've noticed something else, and, uh, and I've seen a mix of it on, on doing some of these podcast interviews, is that some women who are incredibly successful, uh, like when I tell a man, like, tell me about a case, they'll talk about, well, this case I won this much money, or this case I did this, and they like, won't give numbers. They won't like, tout their own success. I, I, I'm pitching softballs, like, tell me about the, a great case. Tell me about a case you're proud of. And I just can't get them to brag. Whereas I don't, it's not I'm not, I've never not seen, braggers. we're just not braggers. I've never seen a male lawyer who hesitated <laughs> to tell you how great he was. Right. Well, 
Right, and so that's some of the stuff that we need to get over. But it's a problem when you're trying to attract referrals because you don't want to be seen as a braggart, but you have to have, you have to find out whether you get someone to say it for you. You say, so people have to know that you're good, or they're not going to refer you a case. Right. And you have to show that self you, you, you When someone's, in, another lawyer's entrusting you with a case, you have to show that confidence, make them walk away feeling like, okay, I did the right thing. Right, and you have to win some cases. Oh, so, absolutely. So the truth is, the truth is, um, but I'm talking about women that have won cases. Well, no, no, I know. But, they just but, don't want to brag about it. Well, right. But, other, but so if, if you're uncomfortable bragging about yourself as a woman, then you can need, you're exactly right. You need to get other people to say stuff yeah. about you. And, and you can do it through the kind of stuff that I do, which is teaching and telling people about how you put together cases and they see how you put together cases. The, the truth is, I think women have an advantage in the court because all of the stereotypes about us cut in our favor rather than against us. So, so in one of my cases um, where when I was a young lawyer and some guy was obnoxiously objecting, 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 one of the jurors just stands up in the jury box and says, now you just leave her alone, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's the, that's the kind of stuff so, that I needed protection. And, and by the way, if you can stand up and, and because you look different in the courtroom than the guys, people are rooting for you. I mean, it, it really is, it, I, I've had just the most wonderful experience with jurors in the courtroom, and I think I have an advantage in the courtroom to a man. I agree, and I, I, the thing I hate most, I'm a six foot four, 260 pound mm. white guy. Mm -hmm. it, when I've had to try a case against a 5'1 female lawyer who is smart enough to go in there with no paralegal, mm -hmm. a just thin file, uh, and be herself, like, Okay, David versus Goliath. I mean, who's one foot three inches, hundred and something pounds heavier? Who's Goliath in this battle? And right. you have to try real hard to make it about the parties and not about the lawyers because right. I'm never winning that battle. And you know, she, she's one woman I'm thinking of. I mean, she beat me on one I never should have lost. And the ones I've won, I think if I had another male lawyer, I would have got bigger verdicts. Of course. Uh, of course, because uh, they root for us. Yeah, and so I guess what I need to do is just uh, keep developing Mallory and just stay home on those trials. That's it. That's it. As long as long, and you you said the key to it. You have to be yourself. Yeah. If you're trying to be the lawyer in your head, if you're trying to be like a guy lawyer, you lose any advantage you have. So yeah. if you could, if you can be, and and for women, that model is when when you ask jurors what they think of lawyers. They give you a whole bunch of adjectives that they're dishonest and ambulance chasers and they, they hate them, don't trust them. When you ask people what they want lawyers to be, their answer is they want you to be a teacher. And if they add an adjective to it, they say they want you to be a caring teacher. And why that gives women an advantage in the courtroom is that all of our teachers, up until the time we got to high school, were all women. For all of us, there just aren't that many men teaching in elementary school. And so if you are the teacher in the courtroom and the guide that, that Carl talks about, um, you're the one they look to for the answers to the case. And I have to go soon. Okay, so. yeah. Any other advice you have to women that are thinking about becoming a trial lawyer or trying to take that next step to getting, becoming a plaintiff's lawyer to become a great trial lawyer? Try cases. <laughs> that's that's it. I mean, you just have to you just have to have to push to be able to try cases. And from the time that I got out of law school, I just kept asking, no matter where I was, when I was working for other people, can I try a case? Can I try a case? Can I try a case? And 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 if people are not giving you enough responsibility or not, if there's something you want to do, like you want to try a cross examination, then you need to ask about that. You can't just 
hope that somebody throws you some crumbs. You have to ask affirmatively to do the things that you want to do. And for those of us men that want the world to be a better place, want women to step up and we're working with them, what can we do to try to help move the ball forward? Um, I, I let them do those things. Like when they ask, can I do a cross? And if, if they haven't thought of it for very young lawyers, say, would you like to, to give them things uh, and help build their confidence and then help train them to, to, to send them to training programs where they learn how to do it so they feel more comfortable doing it. Um, and that's, that's how you learn. And then after the first 10 trials, you feel comfortable enough where you can work on your style. I think it takes you, it takes you I think, 10 trials. And in the first 10 trials, you're saying, oh my gosh, what happens next? Like, like is now the time for the directive? <laughs> and like, do I have the directive? You're just trying to figure out what the rules of the game are to get comfortable. After 10 trials, you're comfortable enough, I think, to start working on some of the higher level techniques where you can be a better traveler. I think you're right. And then every five years or so, I get another epiphany. I just see like a whole other world of prowl than yeah, ever. Yeah. So. It's amazing. Can't wait to see what I'm going to see in another 10 years. <laughs> it's going to be great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed, uh, I was, like I said, already a fan, but really enjoyed getting to sit here and meet you. And I hope we get to talk again someday. A Sunday? Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Randy McGinn. Randy was also kind enough to offer our podcast listeners a discount on her book. If you visit us at www.triallawyernation.com, we have a link to purchase the book and a code to give you a $10 discount. I highly recommend it. Again, it's a great book. I read it in a day. I couldn't put it down, and I'm making all the lawyers at my firm read it. It will inspire you. It will make you a better lawyer, and it's a great read. Next episode, we're going to have another incredible, legendary trial lawyer, Lisa Blue. Uh, Lisa is based in Texas, but has done cases all across the nation. They've even called her the Queen of Torts. She's got a unique background. She started off as a PhD psychologist, and she talks about how she ended up in law. She's written multiple books on voir dire and jury selection. She's gone from managing and supervising over 800 employees for Baron and Bud, one of the largest environmental law firms in the country, to now having a more of a boutique practice. She's got over $350 million in verdicts uh, and is going to talk to us about how she did that, talk to us about jury selection and about a lot of other things. It's a great conversation. You really need to tune in. So thanks for tuning in this week. I look forward to having you next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing hosts and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Callen and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.